Okay. A reading from the Old Testament from the book of Amos. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. And you have said, I hate, hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, said the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory." So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. 
An argument rose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning in their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you all is the, the one who is the greatest. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. And Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. The Gospel of the Lord. Be seated. Full house this morning. Good morning. It's my pleasure this morning to give a message on week two of our series on the Minor Prophets. Today we're going to be doing a quick trip through the book of Amos that we were privileged to hear a reading from this morning. And I wasn't really comfortable speaking on the prophet Joel. Um, I'm not going to go into why, but that is my first name. So uh, that one's still coming. So we're kind of going a little out of order here. But today I'll really enjoy being able to talk about a book that I really love. Early in our marriage, my wife Stephanie and I were enjoying a getaway in the beautiful city of San Francisco, California. As a Southern California native, it always pains me to praise San Francisco, but the truth must be spoken. As we were walking, we were in a public park south of Market Street when we got a glimpse of a lovely waterfall. We approached the waterfall, and we noticed that this waterfall had walkways and stairways that went up and down inside of it. They allowed visitors to walk all around this falling water. And we noticed something else. The concrete structure that made up the waterfall was graced with words. Quotes were engraved into the concrete. One stood out to me. It read, No, no, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. This quote was taken from Dr. Martin Luther King's famous speech at the March on Washington from 1963. The waterfall was and is a city park monument to Dr. King. And if you're ever in San Francisco, do check it out. The words still stick with me. This Baptist preacher from Atlanta looked around these United States and saw injustice. And in his famous speech, he channeled a prophet from Tekoa in Judah 2,700 years earlier. The prophet he quoted has words that rock our world. Prophet who challenges us to remember the extent of God's lion-hearted desire for justice. A prophet who reminds us that God will judge the world. A prophet who reminds us that the closer we are to God the more he expects of us. Amos challenges us to see what God sees. Yes, we must do justice. There is danger in doing injustice before our roaring lion of a God. But more importantly, we must love and support justice. Yahweh, our great God, loves justice, and he longs to bring restoration to this world. Yesterday, my son Jack turned 17, He's named after C.S. Lewis, who was known by Jack to his friends. And I think I've referenced Lewis in pretty much all of the sermons I've given. And so I'm not going to break my streak today. In the voyage of the Don Treader, Lucy Pavensi finds herself in a house of a magician. 
she reads a book in this house, and it's the best story that she has ever read. The catch is that after she reads it, she can't remember anything about it except four things. She remembers it involves a sword, a tree, a green hill, and a goblet. So as we go through these, this summer series covering the minor prophets, Father Pete set us up wonderfully last week on his, door out, on his way out the door for his sabbatical as he covered the prophet Hosea. Now, Amos was a contemporary of Hosea. He preached at the same, to the same nation at about the same time. And just as Lucy remembers four things about the books she read, I want to focus on four things about Amos that I think sum up the book pretty well. It's not perfect, but it does a pretty good job. The four pictures are a lion, a spiral, a flood, and a booth. A lion, a spiral, flood, and a booth. First, the lion. There's a lion who rules over this whole book. Lion is mentioned five times in this book, and the lion roars three times in the book. I see their kingly authority and raw power, but this lion arrives within a context. Amos prophesies in the 8th century BC, the 700s, At this time, the nation of Israel was split into two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Amos is a shepherd from the south, but speaks to the north. This immediately must have made his job difficult. Imagine, think of a Connecticut Yankee going to Savannah, Georgia to tell them what's what. This southern man is going north to roar as God's mouthpiece. And we sort of see this in chapter 7, verse 12 where Amaziah, a priest, says to Amos, Oh, seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah. Prophesy there. Go home. Your message is not welcome. Furthermore, the Assyrian scattering of the northern kingdom of Israel happens less than 50 years after this prophecy. And we even have an event at the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, that really brings into focus when this happened, an earthquake. Earthquakes are memorable things to live through, trust me. I can tell you days and years of earthquakes when I was growing up in Southern California. So so often, things are marked on this earth by these major events. After the war, after the earthquake, you name it. So God, the great lion depicted here, will be using Amos to preach. And the reason the lion metaphor is so important is this. Amos's message is as conspicuous as a roar. You don't have to be told when you hear a lion roaring. It's a scary, ferocious sound. His roar is so great that it will, as chapter 1, verse 2 says, make the pastures mourn and the top of Mount Carmel wither. The entire book, it's judgment on the nations. It's taking Israel to task. It's an eventual promise of restoration is a roar of a powerful lion. Just like Hosea, which Pete discussed last week, Amos serves in the prosperous time of Jeroboam II, when foreign allegiances and political alliances had created power in the north. But in the book of Amos, the judgment of God has a very different trajectory. It's a trajectory of a spiral. Chapters 1 and 2 create a spiral as God focuses in his judgments on the neighbors of and then on Israel itself. 
As we follow the line of the spiral, we travel in a circle toward the center. Amos speaks judgments on Israel's neighbors. And in the path the spiral makes ends with Israel in its center. Two things strike me about this. It shows us that God cares for the nations outside of his covenant people. But also, we can see that as it gets closer to the center, we see how great God's expectation is of his people. So the seven neighboring nations, I'm going to go through them quickly. They all have a broader theme of overall neighborliness and broader social justice. But there's a poetic device that Amos uses. He says, for three trespasses and for four. Now, he's not enumerating, okay, seven trespasses. It's a poetic device, and you can tell that because each time he judges a nation, Amos really only calls out one, maybe two things. Damascus is called out for mistreatment of Gilead. Philistia is called out for uprooting a population, God's people, and giving them to Edom, a sort of human trafficking. Tyre, the northern city, is inflicting exile and not honoring a pact that they had made with Solomon many hundreds of years earlier. Edom is committing violence against their brothers. If you don't remember, Edom is another name for Esau. And so when they were persecuting Israel, they were hurting their brother. Ammon is committing atrocious violence against people of God. Graphic, hideous violence. Moab is committing crimes against Edom. There was desecration of human bodies and the dead. And it's interesting to note here that God is showing judgment between two neighboring nations. God is saying to Moab, you shouldn't be doing this to Edom. And then we arrive at Judah, Israel's closest neighbor, their kin. Judah actually shows an interesting shift in judgment. The primary violation for Judah isn't as much some of the same pictures we see for the other ones, but it's disobedience to the revealed word of God. So by the time we reach Israel at the center of the spiral, we've seen this seismic shift. Israel very well might agree with all the judgments that God has given their neighbors. You can even see them, right, standing on the sideline. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're doing that, they're doing that, they're doing that. But unfortunately, there's seven more chapters in the book, and it's for them. Israel was quick to see the injustice in their neighbors, but their own ledger is horribly in debt. And in the center of this judgment stands a wonderful picture of a flood. And I can't help but thinking about this big tub of water in front of me as I talk about water this morning. There are stark pictures given throughout this book as how Israel has violated the law and the nature of their sin. Chapters 2 through 9 give us so many pictures and visions, but the whole thing hinges on chapter 5. Verse 7 of chapter 2 depicts deep immorality. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 read, I raised up from your sons to be prophets and from your men to be Nazarites, but you gave the Nazarites wine. For those of you who don't remember, Nazarite was a a particular sect in in Israel. Uh, Samson and Samuel were were among them. And they would not cut their hair and not drink any grape juice as ways to be particular servants of God. And the people are feeding them wine. Verse 15 of chapter 3. I will strike down the winter house together with the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall be destroyed and the great houses swept away. Verse 1, chapter 4, listen, you cows of Bashan who crush the needy. 
Further in chapter 4, there's violation of the worship spaces. These, these pictures give us a snapshot of the immorality going on. The people are exploiting the poor in order to live in luxurious homes made of ivory and hewn stones. Along the way, God has given his people opportunities to change. He's sent drought and blight on crops in order to warn the people. Verse 10 of chapter 4. But they don't turn to him. And there's other pictures of corruption seen from chapters 6 through 9. My favorite is an interaction that Amos has with the priest Amaziah in chapter 7. Amaziah is the priest I mentioned earlier who says, Go home. Go back to the, to the south. And there's a very, very colorful interaction, that Amos, a way that Amos decides to judge Amaziah. I'll leave it to you to read yourself, since there's some younger people here. But all the while, in chapter 5, the soul of the book is the magnificent fifth chapter. The Lord has seen so much empty ritual. Journeys to worship sites in Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba are hollow, verse 5. The Lord has seen injustice, verse 7. The Lord judges the powerful, verse 9, verses 10 through 12, that that the people hate the reprover in the gates. The people are trampling on the poor, verse 10. Taking dishonestly from the poor to build stone-hewn houses, verse 11. Taking bribes, verse 12. The antidote is seen in verse 14 at the beginning of our reading. Seek evil. Seek good. Don't seek evil. Seek good. Flee from evil. But then in verse 18, Amos brings the soul of the problem. The people of Israel say they long for the day of the Lord, the day of justice. But they don't see that they are the problem. Amos asks, why do you want the day of the Lord? And here the lion pops up again, verse 19. And it's a funny picture. Those who long for judgment are like somebody who's fleeing from a lion, only to be met by a bear. Or like a person who leans against the wall to rest, and a serpent bites them. What does God want? He doesn't want empty festivals, or offerings, or songs, or noisy harps. He wants a flood. He wants wells and streams of justice. A flood of justice. And for those of you who have been to Israel, you know it's a very dry land. It is filled with deserts and small valleys called wadis. So justice should flow over the land and change the landscape. And this is a needed message to the northern kingdom. They have gained prosperity through dishonesty and injustice. They have gained prosperity through foreign allegiance and human ingenuity not through God's blessing. And we see that within 50 years, the, nation's gone. the nation is gone. So between chapters 3 through 9, this picture is bleak. The people are given clear commands and they fall short. But even with the bleakness, one more picture is given, a picture of hope. Hope is a booth. Chapter 9, verse 11, he will raise up the booth of David. The word booth is a little bit of a curious one. It would seem better to talk about a house or the line, but the booth is a temporary shelter that is used in the desert. But while true, it is also used in a passage that might be very, very familiar to you. 
In Isaiah 4, we find a passage that is often read at our Easter vigil. Verses 5 and 6. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion a cloud by day and a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Commentator Jeffrey Niehaus says, Booth does not necessarily denote a very humble structure. For it is used of the Lord's heavenly pavilion and of the canopy that will cover his glory when he comes to dwell on Zion. So while Booth shows temporariness, it doesn't take away from the regalness of it. And the invocation of David's name brings us back to the glory days of the United Kingdom. The city imagery in verse 11 shows an overall metaphor that the booth of David also stands for the overall fallenness of David's dynasty but that the division of the country, Jerusalem and Bethel, north and south, one day will be gone. The country will be lifted up. And the abundance, the fields, verse 13, are so fertile that the plower is telling the reaper to move. Get out of the way, it's time to plant again. The hills are flowing with wine. The ruined cities are rebuilt. And the booth is where this beautiful book ends. As bleak as Amos gets at times, restoration is where it ends. In many ways, Amos is a very practical book. Help the poor, do justice, be honest with wealth, serve God. It's not really that mysterious. But Amos's unique message to me ends by speaking two things. First, justice. Justice is a hot topic. There are many reasons for this. Webster defines justice as the maintenance or administration of what is just, especially by the impartial adjustment of conflicting, conflicting claims or the assignment of merited rewards or punishments. Kind of heady. One well-known public figure has said that justice is what love looks like in public. Going back to Dr. King, why do you suppose he used this beautiful Amos passage as he did? I think it's in part because of the generosity of the picture of justice in a land that is doing so much injustice. The life-giving, landscape-altering power of water is the picture. There's a land where the poor are exploited, humans are trafficked, violence is everywhere, innocent People, unborn children, are killed for political power, and there's no regard for God's creation. Justice is water on that parched land. But if you think I'm talking about our day, I'm not. That's the world Amos spoke to. Each one of those sins I just mentioned are transgressions called out by Amos against Israel and against their neighbors. So as we look at our world, we must attend to issues of justice because God loves justice. He did then and he does now. His servant pleads with his people, through him, us, to make justice vital. It gives life and changes the land. But chapter 9 says restoration is coming. Jesus will make it all right one day, right? Why worry The same could be said in Amos' day. Amos gives us a vision of restoration, but he does not compromise on justice. Neither will God. 
God is merciful and just. He commands his people to do justice and to let it work. Support justice. And by all means, support a just cause you care about. But remember, God calls his people to various roles in the fight for justice. Just as he calls all of us to our respective vocations, so he has many people fighting many fights for justice. Pray for them and support them. Remember, Jesus said, the one who is not against you is for you. Second thing, ultimate restoration. This is found in chapter 9. Let's go back to the final words of the book. Verse 15 of chapter 9. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. What a promise. Amos has spent his whole ministry prophesying exile, an exile which comes true less than two generations later. This picture of restoration would be balm to the soul of a fearful nation with this imposing Assyrian empire right next to them. And of course, the original hearers would have thought of the land, the promised land. But I think something larger is happening here than the real estate. After all, the nations of Israel and Judah have still never been fully restored to the land. The existence of the current state of Israel is not a full replanting of both Israel and Judah. The nation of Israel was scattered. Judah was exiled as a group. Israel was scattered. So I think something bigger is going on. Jesus, the new Adam, as Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians, restores the booth of David. But he takes it farther. He goes beyond building the nation state to including all nations in the promise. Those seven judged nations at the beginning, them too. Us, us too. He takes his people, plants them back in the land, the place of growth, and we will never be apart from him again. Need we be reminded of the vision in Revelation God will restore his creation. As Paul says in our 1 Corinthians reading, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. The vision Amos gives us of being planted back in the land gives us wonderful hope of what's to come. We speak of living in the already but not yet. Amos lives and preaches in that reality. As we long for justice to flow like waters, let us also long to be planted back into the land of the new Adam, by the new Adam who restores the booth of David. Let's pray. Almighty God, you created us in your own image. Grant us grace to contend fearlessly against evil and make no peace with oppression. Help us to use our freedom rightly in the establishment of justice in our communities and among the nations. To the glory of your holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.